Ideas matter. Ideas matter. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. As a chief interpreter for Nixon's 1972 ice-breaking trip to China, American senior diplomat Chess Freeman was a witness to the normalization of China-U.S. ties when the Shanghai communique was signed. The recent years have witnessed the world's most critical relationship nosedive to a dangerous point. So what would be his observation of the ups and downs of China-U.S. ties over the past half a century? What would be his suggestions for dealing with the challenges facing these two countries? And how could these two big powers cooperate for the sake of global governance? To discuss these issues and more in the first half of the show, I'm glad to talk with Mr. Freeman. He's also a former U.S. Assistant Secretary of Defense and a senior fellow from Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University. In the second half of the show, I will be joined by Chen Dongxiao, President of the Shanghai Institutes for International Studies, to continue our discussion on China-U.S. ties. Ambassador, welcome to Dialogue. Uh, you were the interpreter uh, for Nixon's 1972 visit to China, and uh, uh, you were involved and you witnessed uh, the drafting and the negotiating of the 1972 Shanghai Communique, which is an important part uh, for the rebuilding of uh, diplomatic ties between China and the United States. Now, looking back, you know, given the changes over the recent years, uh, the relationship has suffered a lot. So how do you characterize the current relationship between the two countries here? Um, I think the relationship at the moment is very bad. Um, uh, in some ways, it resembles the lack of communication that preceded the Shanghai communique. Um, there are lessons, I believe, to be learned from uh, the opening in 1972, 71, 72. Um, essentially, uh, the two sides uh, uh, did two things. First, uh, they reached a consensus on how to manage uh, the Taiwan problem, which had been the major obstacle to communication uh, between them. Uh, and second, uh, they agreed to set aside ideological struggle uh, in favor of pragmatic cooperation, uh, where the interests of the two countries coincided. Um, these two moves enabled uh, U.S.-China relations to move forward. Um, what has happened in the past uh, 50 years or so is that we've had many ups and downs in the relationship. Uh, but over the last decade, uh, the consensus on how to handle the Taiwan problem has disappeared. Uh, the three communiques which recorded the essence of that uh, uh, consensus are essentially no longer observed by the United States. Um, and uh, there has been a return to ideological confrontation, um, I think uh, largely on a mistaken basis. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, uh, this is a reality. So I think there are lessons to be learned from what happened uh, 51 years ago, but um, uh, I don't see any real sign that we're losing, we're, we're about to learn them, unfortunately. Uh, Ambassador, you mentioned about this ideological uh, differences. Uh, if you look at the 1972, the Shanghai Communique, you know, both sides acknowledge they have different uh, political system, they have different practices. And uh, as you said, that's that sense of pragmatism 
uh, that brought the two countries together. And now, you know, with this, uh, sometimes you would say, you know, value-based foreign policy making in Washington or largely in Western countries. And people in China do see that as problematic because if you stress very much about the values or ideology, uh, ideologies, you know, you know, there's, it's, it's a zero sum. It, it's not about, uh, you know, seeking common ground. No, I think actually um, one of the major problems I have with the current U.S.-China policy uh, is that it imputes to China ideological uh, elements, which in fact I don't think exist. Uh, China is ruled by the Chinese Communist Party, uh, which is a Leninist organization. Uh, but many of the objections to Chinese actions and behavior come from China's successful practice of free market economics. Um, this is something very different from 1972, when China followed a different uh, economic philosophy, one of Suri Gongsheng or uh, autarky, self-reliance. Uh, China since then has become the poster child, if you will, for globalized open trade and investment. Uh, so I think uh, there are some serious misunderstandings uh, in, uh, on the American side of uh, the current state of affairs in China. And I don't agree with the ideological condemnation of China, uh, because while I don't agree with Chinese uh, political values, I don't believe they are being correctly described. Mm -hmm. uh, what about uh, the, uh, you know, I would say, you know, many people would believe that's the case. Uh, the U.S. is seeking to uh, maintain its global preeminent uh, position, you know, as the only superpower in the world. So uh, there's a fear or there's a complexity of um, whatever you say it, uh, you know, uh, of, 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 of you know, fear that China is catching up quickly and China may overtake uh, the U.S. In, in terms of this global uh, uh, status there. And that has led to the change of policy on China. Or sometime around 1870, that is 150 years ago, the United States became the largest economy on the, on the planet. And over the course of the 20th century, it became the most powerful society on the planet. Uh, now it is having to adjust uh, to a reduced status. Uh, that is to say, we are still very powerful, very wealthy, very important as a country, uh, but there are other countries rising uh, to challenge uh, our preeminence, uh, primarily uh, China. Uh, we saw earlier in the 20th, late 20th century, uh, Japanese psychological difficulty was dealing with Japan's loss of the status as number one in Asia to China. Uh, now we're seeing something similar on the American side, I believe. Uh, it is psychologically difficult to adjust the facts speak for themselves. Um, in terms of industrial production, the Chinese economy is already twice the size of that of the United States. In terms of purchasing power parity for GDP, uh, the Chinese economy is probably one third larger than the United States economy. In nominal exchange rates, China's economy is only about two thirds the size of ours. Uh, but uh, China is clearly making huge progress I think that's a very good thing. I think it's good for China. It should be good for the United States. 
if we had policies that leveraged Chinese prosperity to buttress our own. Uh, but in fact, we're doing something quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. Now, for you, what is the biggest uh, obstacle right now, uh, you know, standing between the two, uh, the pro probably the most important relationship in the world? You know, uh, what is uh, the issue? Probably we need to identify it before we find a solution to it. I think the issues are uh, very similar to those that we confronted uh, at the beginning of the 1970s, that is 50 years ago. There is no framework now for managing the Taiwan problem. Uh, and that is a fundamental issue for Chinese nationalism. And so this is an issue of Chinese domestic politics, which constrains the ability of the Chinese government to compromise. Similarly, in the United States, there is ideological opposition to China, which constrains the ability of the United States to compromise with China. Uh, I think one factor has changed for the better uh, recently, and that is the two sides have clearly decided to change the tone of the relationship if they can, uh, and to speak politely with each other. As you will recall, the initial encounter between the Biden administration and the Chinese government in, in Anchorage, Alaska, uh, three years ago, was uh, very impolite and uh, very uh, challenging uh, to both sides. Um, and I think uh, the American side, which initiated the uh, rather brutal exchange there, uh, uh, seems to have concluded, at least the White House has concluded, that uh, uh, we need to uh, be polite. We need to be respectful of China, and I hope that uh, spirit will uh, will underlie the uh, forthcoming meeting between uh, Xi Jinping and uh, President Biden. Uh, well, speaker for the tone, the changes uh, we do see, um, you know, frequent exchanges uh, between senior officials from both sides, and uh, so far, uh, you know, can can we identify any specific outcome, a specific change? for the better, for the relationship? Um, so far, uh, no, I don't believe so. We will see what comes out of uh, this meeting. Uh, my impression is that uh, President Xi uh, is uh, coming to APEC in San Francisco, not just to meet with President Biden, but to take part in what is, after all, a multilateral meeting. I understand he will have meetings with other leaders uh, and uh, he will also meet with the American business community and with friends he made a long time ago in Muscatine, Iowa, uh, when he visited there as a young man. So it seems to me that he is trying to um, conserve, to protect, to, to um, hold on to existing constituencies for good Chinese-American relations that exist. He's reaching out to foreign leaders, uh, not just the United States, to uh, try to uh, put relationships on an even keel. Uh, and uh, I think he is trying to explore the very questions that you've been asking with Mr. Biden. That is, is it possible to restore mutual trust and confidence? Is it possible to do things together 
Or if we can't do them together, can we do them in parallel, each side doing its own independent things, recognizing that the effect is to reinforce, each side reinforce the effectiveness of the other side's action. Uh, so that is what will be explored in this meeting. Uh, but I have to say, I don't see much evidence that there will be much progress. Well, with uh, many issues, obviously, for the two leaders, for the two countries to handle. At the same time, we are seeing crises around the world, in the Ukraine crisis, and now you have Gaza crisis. Um, people are trying to see, to explore, uh, if there are any chances for Beijing and Washington to work together, you know, to uh, probably help alleviate the situation, for example, in the Middle East. Um, what do you make of that? Well, I think the two issues, Ukraine uh, obviously has become a proxy war between the United States and the Russian, and the Russian Federation. Um, and um, uh, both are members of the Security Council, and that paralyzes the Security Council on that issue. Normally, one would hope that great powers like China, Russia, the United States, and the Europeans who are represented in the Security Council would work together uh, to promote peace, uh, end wars, mediate, conciliate, and so forth. But it is not possible when one of the parties to a conflict is a member of the Security Council. And unfortunately, in the Middle East, the United States is entirely complicit in the Israeli assaults on Gaza. Uh, we are, to the dismay of many of my fellow citizens, uh, participants in what can only be described as genocide. And the attitude of the United States in the Security Council has been that we don't want a ceasefire and we don't want a negotiation between the warring parties. Um, what is going on there is, moreover, a, an extension uh, into warfare, open warfare, of what has been low-intensity conflict for 75 years. Uh, so, um, and this 75-year period of low-intensity conflict has been, you know, has involved the United States for most of it. So I don't see much possibility of the United States and China working together on this issue, which I think is tragic. Um, I think we could work together uh, if, if the United States uh, were not a party to the war. And then you talked about the coming up of the uh, U.S. election, presidential election, in uh, you know very soon. Um, many people are trying to figure out, you know, how uh, you know whatever the rhetoric on the campaign trail will affect the relationship uh, with China, or you know um, maybe a Republican president uh, in that case, how will that affect the relationship uh, between the two countries? We can't really tell at this point. Uh, my sense is that our politics are in a state similar to that that preceded our civil war. That is when the established parties were replaced by new parties. It was the birth of the Republican Party, the anti-slavery movement, and so forth. Um, and my sense is that a great number of Americans don't want either of the main parties. Um, and that there is a chance that we will see a centrist challenge to the two-party system. Uh, more and more people are speculating about this. Uh, Mr. Trump, who is the likely candidate for the Republican Party, 
um, is greatly disliked by many voters. Mr. Biden similarly is greatly disliked uh, for different reasons. And uh, so I don't think we can tell at this point uh, what the result of the elections will be or what their impact on Sino-American relations might be. On the uh, upcoming uh, summit meeting between President Xi Jinping and President Biden, uh, what's your expectation? Uh, you know, if we are not able to change the relationship by nature, uh, can we make improvements on some, on some of the probably technical issues, for example, more direct flights, probably easier visa uh, application for scholars, for students, you know, people visiting each other? I hope so. Um, I believe that the people-to-people -people relationship is the fundamental basis for this uh, for this relationship, and it will be the basis for the restore, restoration of good relations between the two countries at some point in the in the future. Uh, I am sure there will be an agreement or two on small uh, specific matters, and it's important that we be able to conduct business with each other. I would make a final uh, observation, and that is that it is often said that it is always better to talk than not to talk. Um, generally speaking, I agree with that. Uh, but there are two conditions that you have to bear in mind. First, if you don't know what you're going to say, talking gets you nowhere. And second, um, sometimes when you talk to people, you discover you don't like them and you don't have a meeting of the minds. You consolidate an antagonism. I very much hope that that will not be the case in San Francisco on Wednesday. Related to the question, Ambassador, you know, um, if, if um, Washington is not seeking to, say, bring the relationship back on uh, track, as the Chinese side has described, you know, probably, I don't know which track, probably the, the, we're talking about the relationship before the Trump, uh, then what is the purpose of the Biden administration of having this meeting with President Xi Jinping here? Um, I think it's essentially a combination of a holding action and reassurance to the American business community that we have not uh, ended the productive relationship with China that we have developed over the past 50 years. Uh, so uh, the question really comes down to this. It's underlying all of the discussion we have just had is one question, and that is, is the American side prepared to move forward uh, on the U.S.-China relationship, or does it just want to hold it in place, or perhaps move back from it a little more. And we don't know the answer to that. Um, so um, I think it's very clear on the Chinese side that China has not wanted the deterioration in relations with the United States that has occurred, has tried to strike a conciliatory stance, uh, and has not been met halfway by the United States. Uh, so whether we will meet you halfway or not is an open question. Thank you, Ambassador. Thank you for speaking with us. Takeaway Chinese, where you can take some Chinese away and experience progress day by day. Takeaway Chinese, we will promise you a difference. Welcome to Roundtable, coming to you live from Beijing. From Beijing.
Roundtable. 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 Connecting China and the world. We bring you fun and timely discussions about what's affecting our lives everywhere, every day. Tune in to Roundtable, where the East meets the West, and understanding is the goal. Although there are frequent high-level exchanges between China and the U.S. this year, challenges and uncertainties remain with little changes. How to properly manage differences and seek more common grounds? Should America substantively change its China policy? To find out more, I'm glad to be joined by Chen Dongxiao, president of the Shanghai Institutes for International Studies. Welcome to Dialogue, Dongxiao. If you listen to the U.S. side, their talk is about effective communication channels, and then, uh, of course, including the meetings between the leaders. Uh, they are talking about uh, uh, the requirement uh, because of the fierce competition. So you need effective communication uh, to prevent misunderstanding, uh, to prevent uh, potentially conflicts over there. But if we listen to the Chinese side, uh, um, the, um, the key message is like uh, all uh, the uh, you know the Chinese side is urging the both sides to return to Bali consen- consensus. You know, moving uh, toward San Francisco and. Um, basically restore China-U.S. relationship to the track of healthy, stable, and sustainable development. Can you talk more about the views from the Chinese side or the differences between the two sides? Well, I think that uh, if uh, obviously we have seen some differences. Um, My understanding is from Washington's perspective, they understand that there will be a no breakthrough, there will be no fundamental shift of their the so-called strategic competition with China. And in this context, they focus more on how to set up or rebuild those, what they call the effective lines of communication. And you mentioned those effective or intensive diplomacy to keep both sides, the lines of communication open. And uh, so they at least would reduce the misperception or at least could convey a precisely on time those important message to each other. Are you saying that, uh, you know, uh, the relationship, for example, for the United States, the relationship with China has a lot to do with uh, their domestic, let's say, grievances. Uh, for example, globalization. Uh, there is uh, the rise of a populism inside the U.S. People feel that they are alienated or they did not well benefit from the process of globalization. Uh, so you know, there is a pressure on the government, and the government tend to probably blame others, especially China, uh, in this uh, case. Uh, so you see somehow there's a connection between the foreign policy and the domestic governance here? Yes, this is another aspect, another dimension about uh, the competition through the reform. I think anyway, I think both two countries, they are deeply connected and they are also engaged each other in a complex, a multidimensional interdependence, economically, societally, and let alone the ecological way. So I think that, as you said, those, um, the so-called losers, they would like to attribute the loss or their grievance 
happens to the trade, to international trade or economic globalization itself. But I think largely because the benefit of this economic globalization have not been very fairly distributed through those domestic governments. So in regard, I think that on one side, each government needs further the reform their domestic governance mechanisms. And more importantly, also would like to uh, create a more fair and uh, inclusive markets so that each country's companies, entrepreneurs, business communities could have a more fair access to each other's market. And I think this is also very important. Uh, now, uh, again, uh, back to this overall relationship, uh, of course, uh, you know, it's uh, really up to the U.S. You know, the U.S. has changed its policy on China from one of engagement to one of uh, uh, competition and the confrontation with little cooperation. Uh, right now, if you look at the media and the response from global leaders, for example, one uh, official from a research arm of APAC, where we are going to have this meeting in San Francisco, uh, talked about uh, you know the expectation of a warmer, of a stable relationship between the two largest economies, because that's a win-win not only for the two countries, but also most importantly for a lot of countries in between. Do you think Washington has noticed such a earnest expectation uh, out of the rest of the world, let's say? Yes, obviously. I think that uh, in the past few um, months, uh, one of the driving forces behind the Washington's adjustment of its policy uh, towards the bilateral relationship is that they are trying to assure their partners, alliance, and a lot of uh, uh, Asian Pacific countries that Washington is not going to rock the boat of the bilateral relationship. Washington is not trying to uh, cause a more a military confrontation with China. And I think that such kind of concerns from those Asian Pacific countries are real, including a lot of uh, partners and uh, the align of the United States. So I think that Washington tried to reassure to it's aligned and uh, as well as those partners and those countries in Asia Pacific countries that Washington is not is not in the interest of Washington to pursue the so-called a confrontation with the China and Washington is not is no interested in pursuing the a Cold War uh, policy vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Beijing. So I think this is just I think the one of the key concerns from those neighboring countries in the Asia Pacific and Washington have to reassure them and in order to uh, to make them believe that the problem is not on part of the Washington. Well, thank you, Dong Xiao. Thank you for speaking with us. With that, we come to the end for today's show. Many thanks to our guests. I'm Xu Qinduo. Thanks for being with us.